You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Today's scripture is Isaiah 9, 6-7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful that you have brought each of of us here safely. We don't want to take that for granted. As we look outside at the beauty and wonder of your creation, we also realize that there uh, is danger and uncertainty in traveling, and so we're We're grateful for your kindness and your mercy to us in bringing us here safely to gather and to worship you. I pray now as we open the word that you will show us Christ, Holy Spirit. That you will help us to see the beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus as we examine the promise and then the fulfillment of his first coming, we long for his second coming. When what we experience in part now will be made a full reality. So Holy Spirit, would you use your word uh, to convict comfort and to change us. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well over 15 million people lost their lives during World War I. It was a horrific conflict. But before the extreme devastation, during the first holiday season of the war in 1914, Something very unusual happened on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. History records that thousands of British, Belgian, and French soldiers put down their rifles, stepped out of their trenches, and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade Brigade described what happened. This is what he said, quote, First, the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours, until we started up, O come, all ye faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol, in the middle of a war. 
unquote. The next morning, in some places, German soldiers emerged from their trenches calling out, Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out warily to greet them. In others, Germans held up signs reading, You no shoot, we no shoot. Over the course of the day, troops exchanged gifts of cigarettes and food and buttons and hats. The Christmas truce also allowed both sides to finally bury their dead comrades. The bodies had lain for weeks in no man's land, the ground beneath or the ground between opposing trenches. This is a remarkable story, but friends, I'd like to suggest that it's, it's not just that we love to hear a story like this, but there's actually something hardwired in us that longs for peace. You see, we know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We know something is broken, and the Bible tells us exactly what that is, and it tells us how everything will be made right again. Within the scriptures, we don't just find a, a moment of peace followed by a horrific war. But we read of a gracious and omnipotent God who enters into the profound brokenness of this world and he both promises and delivers perfect peace. Over the next few weeks, as you've already heard, we'll be engaged in a short series Leading up to Christmas, the series is called The Promise of Christ. We'll see together how the promise of Christ is the promise of true and eternal peace, hope, joy, and love. We'll look at the promise of peace this morning as it develops throughout Scripture. That's where we'll begin with the promise of peace. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the messianic kingdom anticipated in the Old Testament. In fact, we see this from the very beginning of the biblical story. The garden is a place of perfect peace where God and man lived in unhindered fellowship. But what happened when sin entered the picture? Well, so did hostility. Something was broken between God and man. And into that brokenness came Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the promise that peace will come into a world of brokenness and hostility. Most of you know the text. God declares to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heal. God says to the serpent that there will be hostility and it will last for generations, but he also promises that this hostility will have an end. Friends, this is the promise of peace. This is the promise of peace, and how will this peace come? How will God fulfill his promise of peace? According to Genesis 3.15, peace will come by the seed of the woman. 
the entire Old Testament unfolds with an anticipation. A long season of waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of the one who will bring peace. There are many references we could go to, but let me invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Let me take a few minutes to explain a little bit about the context of the book of Isaiah. It can be tricky to just dive into chapter 9 of a book, but the overarching occasion for the writing of Isaiah was the ongoing crisis that the people of God were facing as a result of the dominance and the oppression of the great Mesopotamian powers, Assyria and then Babylon. Together they dominated the ancient Near East from about 900 B.C. until around 549 B.C. Assyria destroyed and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 and Babylon delivered the the crowning blow by destroying and exiling Judah in 586. So friends, it's during the time of the Assyrian advance and dominance amidst feelings of fear and uncertainty that the people of God are being tempted to doubt God's promises about a Messiah. And they are instead putting their hope in human power and glory. In fact, King Ahaz of Judah refuses to trust the Lord. And as one theologian points out during this time, In the nation of Israel, there is one underlying question, and here's the question. Who is Israel's real king, and where is their ultimate hope? Who is Israel's real king, and where is their ultimate hope? So it's while the people of God are doubting the promises of God and being drawn away from trusting in God, that Isaiah offers This prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, look with me at verses 6 and 7 again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want you to listen to how Ray Ortland brings this all together. He writes, the power of God, listen, the power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. Oh, this is a good and necessary reminder for us, brothers and sisters. Though our present situation is far different than the nation of Israel during Isaiah's time, we still face the strong temptation to doubt the sovereign power of God. We often wonder if if he's really in control. 
we regularly look around at a nation and a world that are deeply broken. And if we're not careful, we can begin to put our hope in earthly wisdom, earthly power, and earthly glory. You see, the people of Israel, in their doubt, had chosen their own way. They had failed to trust in God, and they had plunged themselves into darkness. But listen, a loving God, this is what we walk away with, a loving God had no intention. A loving God had no intention of leaving his people in the folly of their rebellion. The promise of a Messiah and the plan of God to rescue his people and give them peace was not a result of their goodness or righteousness. It was an act of his unmerited favor and grace. That sounds a lot like the gospel, doesn't it? We'll we'll get to that. Notice again how Isaiah's description of the promised one is bound up in his names and see how this is precisely what the people needed. So remember where they are. Okay, they're, they're overcome with fear, under attack. We want a king like that. We want earthly power. We want earthly wisdom. And Isaiah says, no, there's something better. There's a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. This indicates that Jesus will be a supernatural source of extraordinary wisdom. This would be amazing news for those who need guidance, wouldn't it? Mighty God. This indicates that Jesus will be divinely strong and powerful. This is incredible news for those who are weak. Everlasting Father. This indicates that Jesus will care. Jesus will care for his people forever as a father cares for his children. This would be staggering news for those who are alone and unappreciated. Prince of Peace. This indicates that Jesus will bring deep well-being and right relationships. Everything the people were longing for was going to be delivered in Jesus. Friends, like the people of God needed to be reminded of God's perfect plan, we need to hear this over and over again. Our hearts easily wander. We are prone to doubt and despair. We are quick to put our hope in political leaders, in job security, in a flourishing economy, in stable relationships, forgetting that what we need most, only Jesus can provide. What we need most, only Jesus can provide. The prophecy of peace by the prophet Isaiah ultimately leads to a pronouncement of peace. A pronouncement of peace. Flip forward to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. 
So we're skipping over a lot of developments in the text, but we're hitting some high points. Luke chapter 2. Many, perhaps most of you, know quite well Luke's account of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem because of a census, the birth of Jesus in the most humble of circumstances, shepherds watching over their sheep, and, and then into the night a spectacular and frightening scene breaks through. Let's pick it up in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Don't miss verse 14. The heavenly host declares the glory of God. The glory of God here refers to the manifestation of his power and majesty. So friends, what has happened? What is it that invites this eruption of praise? How has God displayed his power and majesty? In the incarnation. He has fulfilled his promise. He has sent his own son, Jesus. And this is why the heavenly host doesn't simply glorify and praise God, but they also announce that peace has come to earth. Now, I want you to take careful note of who the text identifies as the recipients of the peace Christ brings. You may be able to pick it up easier in an alternate Bible translation. Here is verse 14 in the NIV. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, this promise of peace is only for those who put their faith in Christ turning from their sin and embracing the gospel. To be clear, peace through Christ is offered to all, but it will only be truly experienced by those who believe in Christ. So if you've joined with us this morning and you've never turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you and give you peace with God, then I would beg you to do that this morning without delay. This Christmas season could mark the greatest turning point in your entire 
life. If you'll trust Christ today, he will make you new. He will give you eternal peace. I love the way John Piper summarizes this angelic event in Luke 2 and what it means for us. He writes, This child came and an army of angels shows up to declare praise. What is that about? It is about glory ever ascending from man to God and peace ever descending from God to man. This is what this is all about. God getting glory, us getting peace. God getting glory, us getting peace. For the Christian, the reality of the incarnation is a reason for profound and joyful praise. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, to secure eternal peace for all who believe. This is cause for endless celebration. You see, this truth that God became man, it changes everything. Consider how Paul puts it to the Galatians. He writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, I want you to catch this. If there is no incarnation, there is no adoption. If there is no incarnation, there is no adoption. And if there is no adoption, then there is no hope. There's no incarnation, there's no adoption. If there's no adoption, there is no hope for peace between sinful man and a holy God. Isaiah prophesied of the peace to come. The heavenly host announced that the Prince of Peace had come. And finally, the Apostle Paul explains exactly how this peace is applied. So flip forward again to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, as we see the provision of peace. To understand and grasp the full and glorious meaning of Romans 5.1, we need to skip past it and read verses 6 through 11, where Paul explains our natural condition the condition into which a holy God intervenes by grace and changes everything. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, and, and here I want you to think, I want you to think how this description bears such a resemblance to Israel back in Isaiah when the promise of the coming Messiah was declared. 
Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. How does verse 10 refer to each of us? Enemies enemies of God in need of reconciliation. In other words, friends, this takes us back to the garden where we began. Because of sin, there is enmity between us and God. There is hostility. We are opposed to him. We're objects of his wrath. And there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make peace with him. There is no way, if left to ourselves, that we can appease his wrath. So think about this. The one we are opposed to and rebelling against, he must provide a way of peace. He must act in love toward his enemies. He must fulfill the promise he made back in Genesis 3.15 at great cost to himself. The angels announced that Jesus had come to bring peace. But to bring the promised peace, Jesus had to do something more than be born. He had to die. This is the provision of peace. So now look with me at verse 1 of Romans 5. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, instead of the hostility that naturally marked our relationship with God through Jesus. Two glorious words here. Through Jesus, we have been made right with God. Theologian Michael Byrd powerfully explains the peace we have obtained through Christ. Listen to what he writes. This peace is not a subjective experience like a sensation of inner tranquility attained by sitting next to a quiet stream or the serenity one arrives at by engaging in meditation techniques. No, this peace is objective and entails the end of hostilities between warring parties. 
because God's enemies are justified, it means that their enmity has been pacified. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the source of our peace. Just as much as he is the source of our righteousness. Thus, God sends his son to make peace between parties formerly at war. Redeemer family, I, I fear, I fear that we are all in danger of reaching a point where we yawn when we hear that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. In our desire to celebrate the glories of the gospel and the imputed righteousness of Christ, if we're not careful, we can forget about the very bad news that makes the good news so good. Right? Think about it again. If Jesus gives us peace with God. This means that until we are justified by faith, there's a war going on between God and us. When we disobey God, two things happen. The first is that when we sin, we not only break God's law, but we assume the right or authority to do so. We claim kingship over ourselves and our world. Friends, God claims kingship over the same thing. So what happens? Well, whenever two parties claim absolute control over something, what happens? There's a war. The second thing is that our disobedience means that God, that God has a problem with us. It is not just that we are hostile to him. Paul has already told us that God's wrath is upon us back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And we know from Romans 1 that God's anger is not the same as ours. It's not vengeful or vindictive. It's, it's legal. So you see, there's, there's a sentence on us. And it can't just be discarded. The debt can't just be wished away. This is why we can't simply turn back to God as, as though we have the power to decide to be at peace again. No, friends, we need to be reconciled to him. We have to receive reconciliation. So I want you to hear this. Carefully, peace with God is not something that we achieve. It is something we receive only through Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no peace between sinful man and a holy God. There is only hostility. There is only wrath. There is only eternal punishment. But through Jesus, we have been rescued. 
We have been justified. We have peace. So in the midst of a broken world where we know something is wrong, we long for peace. And God promises peace. But it's not a fleeting and temporary peace agreed upon by elected officials or world leaders. And it's not just a fleeting illusion of peace. The peace that God has promised in Jesus isn't something we merely hope for. But it is as sure and certain as the tomb of Jesus is empty. And what we experience now through Jesus will one day spread and peace will mark everything when he comes again. And that's why we long for the second coming. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to consider the work of Christ, the Prince of Peace. There's actually a, a stanza of a hymn that summarizes everything we've talked about this morning. This is one of the beauty of, of hymns and well-written songs is they have the ability to condense massive amounts of truth into beautiful and memorable stanzas. And the hymn is called Joy Has Dawned. It's written by Stuart Townend. And this is what it says. Son of Adam, Son of Heaven, given as a ransom, reconciling God and man, Christ, our mighty champion. Friends, consider your champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you come to the table, as you take of the cup and the bread, remember that this was the price of your peace. Let's pray together.